0: Listeners warning. There will be some topics covered in today's episode that may challenge your beliefs and may not be appropriate for younger listeners. Thank you for remaining open-minded as I share information on some subjects that some people or belief systems consider taboo. Over the last 200 years, there has been a major shift in the idea of what psychic activity and paranormal phenomena looks like and how the public can seek help. Gone are the days of hidden midnight seances and misunderstandings of what goes bump in the night. The 20th century opened up the doors to investigative techniques and technologies that brought tangible proof to claims of haunted houses and demonic infestations. In this line of work, there are many skeptics who hold the intention to disprove any kind of paranormal complaint. However, there are just as many truth seekers who believe to their core that there is darkness and evil that some places, and people, naturally harbor. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the most well-known investigators of the paranormal and demonic in today's popular culture, Ed and Lorraine Warren. The Warrens are known for being involved in some of the most terrifying cases of hauntings and demonic infestations of the last 52 years. I would like to share with you who Ed and Lorraine Warren were in life, and what I've learned about two of their most famous cases. I did not take this research project lightly. There is a plethora of written, audio, and video content to be found on the Warrens and their case files. Content offered by true believers and skeptics alike, so buckle up. This is going to be a deep share into what the last few decades have revealed about Annabelle and the Amityville Horror. What's the Hollywood influence? And where did it all begin? Welcome to the Dark Side of Lightwork. I'm Wynne Thornley. In life, I'm a certified professionally practicing Reiki master teacher and channel to the ethers, specializing in all things that remedy the soul. I am also a supernatural nerd and do lots of personal research on things that go bump in the night. My fascination with the unknown began when I was a kid, due to having my own misunderstood psychic experiences. I'm not a professional historical sleuth, just a gal who likes to absorb cool information and share it with anyone who will listen. I believe my lifelong fascination with the strange and unusual has prepared me for the work I am called to do now, taking me places other lightworkers will not go. These experiences have taught me a lot about how many fallacies we are told, and actually believe, about the supernatural and paranormal. Join me as I share with you what I've learned about the realms of superstitions, mystics of the past, and places that make you feel uneasy. I want to lift the veil a little bit and take the Hollywood out of the paranormal and metaphysics. And if you like what you hear, follow along by subscribing and please tell your friends. Ed and Lorraine Warren began their lifetime of work within the realms of the supernatural when they officially founded the New England Society for Psychic Research in 1952. This is the oldest psychical research society in the New England area. Their society is still active today and is maintained by their son-in-law, Tony Spira, who is deeply involved in the investigations and the training of new recruits. Tony was a mentee of Ed and Lorraine for decades, learning all he could while in the field with the Warrens. Ed and Lorraine's daughter, Judy, runs behind the scenes work at the society and is not directly involved in any of the investigations. Judy has been quoted as saying that she does not actively work with her psychic gifts, though she is aware of them. Recently, Tony Spira and his investigative team returned to what is known as the Conjuring House with a live broadcast being streamed on social media. This took place on October 16th, 2020. I implore you to go check it out. I think it will help put their accepted investigation style into perspective. Once you have listened to this podcast episode, check my show notes for that later, but for now, let's go back to the beginning who were Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ed Warren Minnie was born on September 7th, 1926 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. He was an artist, but is most famous for being a self-taught and self-proclaimed paranormal investigator and demonologist. Though his early years were unremarkable, Ed does share about his time living in a haunted house. This was between the ages of 5 to 12 years old. This experience is possibly the core reason behind Ed's lifelong pursuit in understanding and dealing with the paranormal and supernatural. Ed has shared many times about the ghost lights, extreme temperature changes, and disembodied footsteps and breathing that he experienced in his bedroom, all while he lived in that haunted residence. During his school years, Ed enjoyed attending Catholic school. He feels that Catholicism is where he began to learn about the supernatural. In an interview I watched, Ed talks about how he believes all great religions are based on the supernatural world. He mentioned that he really resonated with the words and the stories within biblical texts. He often wondered why these subjects were taboo when the Bible uses words and shares stories that talk about ghosts, apparitions, spirits, and more of the like. Why would the Bible mention these things if we were not meant to learn about it? His story becomes well more documented after he met Lorraine, and this was at 16 years old. The first meeting took place at the Colonial Theatre in Bridgeport. This is where Ed worked as an usher. From there, their story quickly moves into their work as paranormal investigators. Lorraine Rita Moran, married Warren, was born January 31st, 1927, also in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Lorraine was a trance medium and paranormal investigator in life. The Moran family moved from Bridgeport to Milton, Connecticut for a time when Lorraine was young, but they returned to Bridgeport before Lorraine entered her teens. Her family spent most of their time in service to the St. Charles Irish Parish while back in Bridgeport. By the age of nine years old, Lorraine says that she began seeing lights around people. She later came to learn that these lights are known as the biomagnetic field, or the aura and this was when she started to go through her personal psychic studies but as a child lorraine thought others could see auras too she has mentioned in interviews that she had led a pretty sheltered life that coupled with attending a private catholic school as a youth it gave her limited opportunities to talk about the things that lorraine was seeing and feeling in the first episode of ed and lorraine's local cable show that aired from 1998 to 1999 called Seekers of the Supernatural. Lorraine was very open about how this part of her life was a mystery before she met Ed. She knew it was something you could never share with the nuns at the private school that she attended, and at home, she mentioned that it was okay to joke about spirit and the Supernatural, but it was never to be taken seriously. She herself admits that she was quite close-minded to the idea of haunted houses and ghosts before she met Ed, her family, Church and school, while well, they all taught her it was wrong and unnatural to talk about anything supernatural. So, this side of her life remained private. Lorraine often shares the story about how her and Ed met. Yes, they did meet at the Colonial Theater where Ed worked, but not until after a lot of convincing came from some of Lorraine's friends. Lorraine said she was not interested in the City Boys of Bridgeport. Milton showed her hard work on the farm and the strength it created for her father and brothers. The city men were weak, and she was not sure she would be able to find anybody as respectable as the men in her family. She had high expectations, and I don't blame her. With his shined up shoes, perfectly pressed increased creased pants, and all over clean disposition, Lorraine was very surprised with her first impression of Ed Warren. So much so, she decided to take a chance on this well-groomed and polite gentleman. They were both 16 at the time, and it was through Ed And the life they began to create together where lorraine had the freedom to begin understanding more about her psychic gifts and more than she could ever imagine involving the world of the paranormal in 1945 only one year after ed and lorraine began building their relationship ed was recruited into the navy his service was cut short when his ship was sunk in the north atlantic only four months into his service he graciously took his survivors leave which at the time was only 30 days Ed and Lorraine decided to take this opportunity to make their love official, and they married. It is unclear to me how long Ed served in the Navy after this point, but it was not long after the arrival of their only child. Judy Warren was born to Ed and Lorraine in the year 1951. After serving time in the Navy, Ed enrolled in the Perry Art School. Painting and artistic expression would play a large role in Ed's life, but especially at the beginning of his and Lorraine's journey into investigations involving hauntings and more sinister energy. By 1952, Ed had dropped out of art school and took his family on the road in hopes to sell his paintings as they go. Little did they know his paintings would be the thing to launch Ed and Lorraine into the haunted house business. Lorraine speaks about a home they call the Ocean Born Mary House. This is located in Henneker, New Hampshire. This was the home that Lorraine credits with having her first real-deal experience in a haunted house. You see, Ed would drive around and they would find homes that gave them inspiration. Once they located this home of inspiration, Ed would paint it and then knock on the owner's door and try to sell the painting. The Oceanborn Mary house was one of the early homes they approached not only with, with the painting, but also with the extended invitation to investigate the psychic impressions Lorraine was receiving. She said it was difficult for her at first, as she was a non-believer. But when she finally got the validation of psychic phenomena from the Henneker home, it made it easier moving forward. After this point in time, we do know that the Warren family traveled the northeastern states, staying close to their home state of Connecticut. They potentially actually lived out of their car for some of that time as well. So when they drove around, they would go and scan and try to pick up haunted houses that Ed would then create the paintings of. The paintings were hopefully sold and used as a paranormal icebreaker at the door. I'm not sure how many paintings he sold, but it did jumpstart their practice in detecting and diagnosis of unsettling homes. The one thing that you should know before we get too far into this, and this is something, if you didn't already know it, you really should know it. The fact is, Ed and Lorraine Warren claim to have never charged a fee for their home curing services, ever. And that appears to be true however let's not forget that they did make money off of the sales of their co-written books lectures and eventual movie consultations by the mid 1990s it has been reported that for some of their lectures the admission fee for the attendees was as much as a few thousand dollars there is also the occult museum in their Monroe home right now it's closed but in the past the public tours to their haunted occult museum were $27 a ticket I'm pretty sure I would pay that to wander through. This is their life's work on display. And honestly, that's where they keep Annabelle. In 1998, Ed and Lorraine filmed their local cable show called Seekers of the Supernatural with moderator and son-in-law, Tony Spira. This ran for one season, and you can find all the episodes on their official YouTube channel. After Ed passed away, Lorraine continued their work at their Eau Museum and on road lectures and TV appearances. She is most notable for working closely with the college students of the hit a and show, Paranormal State, that was recorded in the late 2000s. Lorraine did some consultations for the show and shared her life story at a cult museum. But back in the beginning, it was being on the road for 10 years, learning and honing their craft in the world of demonology and the paranormal. That's what, where the Warrens began to finally create a name for themselves. They would finally settle in Moreau, Connecticut, in around the year 1961. The Warrens were hired not only through private clients, but they also worked by referral through many religious communities. Through the 4,000 to 10,000 cases of the paranormal and demonic that the Warrens have claimed to work on, all were done through the perspective of Roman Catholic and other religious teachings that work with the dark side. On their official website, it states that in life, the Warrens dealt specifically with religious entities and demons. Ed and Lorraine had a strong belief in their faith and created a solid connection with God and Jesus to get the work done. From what I understood, many of their clients also prescribed to Roman Catholic teachings and worship. Both Ed and Lorraine have passed on to the other side, Ed in 2006 and Lorraine in early 2019. They have left an amazing legacy that explored some of the most horrific cases of hauntings and demonic infestations of recent history. This is where we find the most information about Ed and Lorraine. Time to dig into the truth and the fallacies of two of my favorite true case files of the Warrens. As a side note, I absolutely expect there will be a part two and three to complement this episode down the road. I did so much research. I have enough information on several of their other cases to easily convert into episodes for this podcast. So that's kind of exciting. The first famous Warren case, according to the date, would be the Annabelle case. Forget the movies. Here's the tale that is told through the Warren's official page and many other sources I found in my searching. This story begins in Hartford, Connecticut, the year 1970. A nursing student named Donna receives a Raggedy Ann doll as a gift from her mom on her 25th birthday. Donna claims that within a short time of the doll's arrival home, the limbs would begin to move. She explained that she would place the doll in the same position each day before leaving for work or school, and by the time she came home, she would find the limbs shifted on their own. Sometimes the legs would be crossed or the arms outstretched. Over time, the doll would begin to move rooms. One night, Donna came home with her roommate Angie and Angie's boyfriend Lou, All of them claimed to have witnessed coming home and finding the doll kneeling before them in a chair. Though they tried to recreate this position, no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't due to the limp, stuffed body style. Things began to escalate when Donna began to find notes written in pencil on parchment paper, notes claiming to be from this doll. They were found all around the apartment. Each had a message like, help us, or, Help Lou. Yet Donna couldn't link them to any emergency or any situation. Donna also claimed there was no pencils or parchment paper in the home to add to the mystery. Becoming paranoid now, both Donna and Angie thought maybe someone was breaking in and trying to scare them. So they decided to booby trap the windows and the doors. Nothing happened. So after coming up empty with the booby traps, it would be the next incident That had the nurse's students going from paranoid to frightened it was the day that they found blood on the back of one of the doll's hands and three spots of blood on the chest they decided it was time to bring in a medium the medium they brought in said this doll had been possessed by a seven-year-old girl one who lived around the apartment block complex that they now reside in in this girl's time of passing on it was all farmland And over time, she became attracted to the apartment building. She was lonely, and her name was Annabelle. She was just looking for someone to play with. And when she found Donna's apartment and the Raggedy Ann doll, she thought this was perfect. Annabelle just wanted to play with the doll. Innocent enough, right? As the story goes, the girls decided to let Annabelle live in the doll. And on advice of the medium, they gave her permission i would not have advised the same but this is me here the roommates began treating the doll as if she was alive commenting and talking to her innocently it was only after the doll turned into annabelle that the true haunting began lou angie's boyfriend was definitely questioned on his experience he said he did not like what the girls were doing he saw this as evil and felt like they were creating a voodoo doll As it goes, Lou and the girls felt Annabelle turned against Lou. And here is where things take a twist. One night, Lou woke up to Annabelle the doll, choking him while Angie lay asleep beside him. Lou said he had trouble getting the doll off of him as if it had supernatural strength, but he eventually managed. Not long after that, Lou was attacked again, but this time Angie was wide awake. They were home alone and they began to hear noises coming from the room where Annabelle was being kept. When Lou entered the room, he saw the doll had been tossed across the room into a corner. When he approached the doll, he and Angie claimed that Lou was scratched across the chest by an invisible tacker. Angie could actually see the blood seeping through his shirt. It was time to call in a priest. A priest named Father Hegan came in, and after his investigation, he was inspired to call his superior. It was at this point where Father Hegan's superior, Father Cook, felt this was a case for the Warrens, and passed along the details to them. When the Warrens arrived at Donna's apartment, they concluded that there was a demonic infestation. There was no Annabelle, and the doll was actually being used as a conduit for a demon and that this was a particularly powerful demon at that. The Warrens warned the girls that by giving permission for Annabelle to enter the doll, that they actually gave the demon permission to interfere physically and harm them. They could have all been dead within a week if they didn't bring us in, according to the Warrens. After their investigation and conclusions, the Warrens petitioned the Catholic Church and requested an exorcism take place on this apartment The request was granted for a minor exorcism, and a priest successfully completed the service. At Donna's request, Ed and Lorraine took the doll in order to keep others safe. And by making this decision, Ed and Lorraine claim to have almost lost their lives in the process. As the story goes, the doll was carefully placed in the backseat of their car. Shortly into their hour-long trip from Hartford to Monroe, The Warrens felt the dark energy coming from the back seat. Ed claims he lost control of the car several times during the drive home, almost killing them. He even claims the brakes would fail. After having enough of that silly business, Ed decided it was time to take back control of the situation. He took his vial of holy water from his investigation kit and splashed the doll. This shifted the energy just enough for the Warrens to get home safely. They did not encase Annabelle in her current glass case right away. Nope, not at first. This came later. Unfortunately, once Ed and Lorraine got the doll to their home, Ed ended up placing the doll in a chair, which was contained in his office. The Warrens claimed that in the days to come, they would witness the doll levitate and transport to different areas of the home. Lorraine also reported one frightening incident where loud growls filled the entire room and home and she blames Annabelle. They decide to have a priest come in and bless the doll. Apparently, the priest told Annabelle that she was just a doll and that she cannot harm anyone. Ed came in to warn him right away not to talk against the doll and then Lorraine claims she foresaw trouble so she warned the priest to drive safe on the way home. Both Ed and Lorraine were very concerned when the priest left. According to the Warrens, a few hours later, the priest's car was totaled after his brakes failed, almost causing a fatal accident. They share a similar story about a motorcyclist and his girlfriend coming for a tour of their occult museum. The male was said to have taunted Annabelle and he was warned by the Warrens. He did not comply. Again, according to Ed Warren himself, this couple was involved in a serious accident the same day with the male losing his life. After that, Annabelle was deemed too dangerous just to be lying around. So Ed built the glass and wooden box that she resides in today. There is a hand painted sign that hangs in her window that reads, warning, positively do not open. So have you heard that full version? What do you think? Would you touch Annabelle? Even today, the story lives on at the Warren's Occult Museum where the doll is housed. There were two big events circling the internet in 2020 in regards to Annabelle. One was a story that hit the internet earlier this year warning of Annabelle's escape from the Warren's Occult Museum. It turned out to be a hoax cleared up by the face of the New England Society of Psychic Research, Tony Spira. The second story, is where Tony conducted a live stream of him moving Annabelle. It was lackluster at best, but one thing he said during the move really made me think. Before Tony moved Annabelle, he was very clear that you should never allow your skin to touch Annabelle or any of the haunted relics. Lorraine and Ed both warned of this as well. If that happens, they say it could mix your auras and cause the demon to jump to your body. And that sounded a little weird to me within my reiki mastery training i was taught all about the anatomy of the aura and how it interacts with other people and objects just as a side note here okay your aura is already mingling with someone or something else well before you can touch skin in the case of a healthy aura it can expand out as far as you can stretch your arms away from your body and in all directions and just naturally this is why we talk a lot about filling the aura up with light and creating a healthy, energetic hygiene routine. The healthier the aura, the less attracted to sketchy vibes you are. The aura tells us a lot about our personalities, our health, and our mental, emotional, and spiritual states. Now. This information does not mean I'm right or wrong, but this is very common knowledge in the energetic arts and bleeds into other teachings. So it was just something I noticed. It just seemed a little off to me. So, did Hollywood have it right? Doing the work I'm grateful I get to do, I have taken extensive training and practice in how to deal with haunted objects and places. Much of what Hollywood has had to share with us on the subject is entertaining at best. So, I wondered how much of the Annabelle tale is true Annabelle made her debut into Hollywood with her story being included at the beginning of the 2013 horror hit The Conjuring though they did change her appearance to a doll much more horrifying in my opinion they had to do this due to branding infringement problems with the Raggedy Ann company anyway after Annabelle's appearance in The Conjuring her story grew and expanded into a three-movie series of her very own Annabelle from 2014, Annabelle Creation from 2017, and Annabelle Comes Home, which was released just last year in 2019. And yes, I have seen them all. According to my research for this episode, as far as the Hollywood version goes, the short story at the beginning of The Conjuring is the closest you will get to the truth. The rest of the movies are a complete work of fiction, fun, frightening and mega entertaining for us horror movie geeks. Yes, but fiction. Upon my deepest research to my capabilities, mind you, I became to realize something. The names of the nursing students involved in the Annabelle case changes according to the source you look up. In the Warren's official case files from their website, they use the names Donna, Angie, and Lou. No last names. In the other sources I saw the names Deirdre Bernard in place of Donna Laura Clifton in place of Angie and Cal Randall in place of Lou but beyond that it's difficult to establish if these people really existed I also found sources to say that the doll was bought and gifted in 1968 where the Warren's website says 1970 something more is that it's tough to find anything to corroborate the near fatal crashes of the priest or any records of a male dying in a motorcycle visit after the after seeing and visiting the warren's occult museum now keep in mind i did not call police officials i didn't pull any records i couldn't go into their libraries and look up their microfiche but maybe somebody should i just had a difficult time finding any validity to this tale i went to the videos of ed himself talking about both incidents and there was no dates no years or no names offered in Ed's storytelling and it all seems pretty vague kind of like we should just take it at face value being they're the experts in the field others have linked Ed and Lorraine's haunted doll to the infamous Robert the doll tale if you have not heard of Robert the doll there is lots to find in the world of podcasts and YouTube videos on him He, too, is said to be a haunted doll that causes misfortune to those who taunt and tease him. He is currently housed in the East Martello Museum in Key West, Florida. In this real-life tale of the paranormal, young Robert Eugene Otto received Robert the doll as a birthday gift from his grandfather in the year 1904. Robert the doll was made by the German toy maker Steiff, the same that is famous for their teddy bears. Robert loved this doll so much so that he went everywhere with little Robert and also shared his clothes. The sailor outfit Robert the doll wears today is believed to be out of young Robert Otto's wardrobe. Over time, the real life Robert Otto grew to be an eccentric artist and eventually passed away in his Key West Florida home in 1974. The story of Robert the doll was already well known in this circle of Florida with claims that he can giggle, change his position, and even his facial expressions. Check out the link I left in my show notes about Robert the Doll so you can check it out for yourself. Another bump in the road that made me think was I have read that people claim the Warrens fabricated the haunted doll tale from an old Twilight Zone episode. The sixth episode of the fifth season of the original run of the Twilight Zone was called living doll this was from the year 1963 in this episode of the Twilight Zone the daughter in the family receives a doll that begins to run amok in the household I know not that crazy of a connection not until you learn the mother's name in this episode was Annabelle to be honest I'm not sure what to think here My biggest problem with the Annabelle tale is there's virtually no evidence collected by the Warrens or anyone else to verify this story easily. Not to say that the nursing students didn't give false names to protect their identity. This is a really weird industry, and not everyone who hires a psychic medium or demonologist wants others to know they did so. However, I do have another problem. It is with the haunted doll theory in itself my problem is why is this doll still haunted why as a self-proclaimed demonologist who can perform mild exorcisms and clearings why was this item left haunted or potentially possessed by a powerful demon especially if it was supposed to be that dangerous and who besides the warrens themselves i suppose has the motive to give this demon permission to continue living in this doll for so long In my understanding of haunted objects, something without a consciousness, it can be a vessel, yes, but not for a long period of time without the continued permission of another, or with the use of some type of binding spell. For the most part, you're kind of picking up psychic impressions of the past from an object, and we learn this in the art of psychometry. That psychic impression is built up over years of use and connection with an object. This energetic signature from the past it will always 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 fade over time I mean I could be wrong as there are vast teachings on the work uh, with dark forces and haunted objects but in the case of possession there does need to be some kind of permission in place for the possession to carry on some sort of an allowance even as far as Ed and Lorraine were concerned I don't know if it was left up to me I would have conducted a full curing on that doll, sending whatever that resides within back to from whence it came, no discussion, done and done. So it really makes me wonder why they would leave it. So this is just the first case in which a deeper look showed me a whole new chapter to the story. It is so important to take that extra time to dig. So let's move on to the next true case file and the last one of this episode. This one is ingrained deeply into our collective consciousness and American history let's revisit the Amityville Horror. On a personal note here, this case file is my core story that gave me reason to dive deeper into dark forces and haunted houses. It's because of this tale that I wanted to learn how this can happen, and what someone can truly do to fix a house as broken and haunted as 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville, New York. I thought I knew a lot about Amityville. In my late teens and early 20s i read several books about amityville and the lutz family i have watched all of the tv documentaries and movies and there are like 17 movies alone by the way all on amityville it's now time to share what i knew about 112 ocean avenue and what the last few decades have revealed about this horrific tale of murder and demonic infestation here's the story the collective consciousness knows through hollywood and popular culture TV documentaries. On November 13, 1974, at around 6.30 p.m., Ronald Butch DeFeo, Jr., 23, entered his local tavern called Henry's Bar. Once inside, Ronald declared, and I quote, you got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. After that, a small group of people followed Robert back to his home to find that his parents had been shot and worse that Ronald's four other family members had been shot as well. The six victims included Ronald's mother, Louise, who was 42, his father, Ronald Sr., who was 43, his sisters, Dawn and Allison, 18 and 13, and his brothers, Mark and John, who were 12 and 9. All were laying face down in bed, dead from gunshot wounds. Since Ronald Jr. was the last surviving member of his mass family killing, he was taken into custody to the local police station for his own protection at first. Ronald's father was rumored to deal with some pretty made men, so they didn't want to take a chance with Ronald's life, if this really did end up being an organized mob hit. It wasn't long until an incredible tale began to unravel, one involving a demonic entity, and evil voices whispering to Ronald to kill his entire family. Without going into major details of the DeFeo case, Ronald pled not guilty with the defense of insanity. In one of Ronald's ever-changing stories, he claimed he saw a dark cloaked entity telling him to kill his family or be killed. The insanity plea was supported by the defense psychiatrist named Daniel Swartz. But the prosecution, well, their psychiatrist named Dr. Harold Zolan, he maintained that in his expert opinion, and even though Ronald was a known LSD and heroin user, he abused alcohol and was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Well, he was still well aware of his actions at the time of the murders. Judge Thomas Stark agreed and found DeFeo guilty on all six charges of murder. And DeFeo was given six sentences of 25 years to life. As of November 2020, Robert Butch DeFeo Jr. is alive and well and being held at the Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, New York, with all appeals to be paroled, denied. Ronald DeFeo Jr. is now 69 years old. More later on what was revealed by DeFeo himself within the last 30 years. First, I want to share the story that is in our collective consciousness of the family who moved in a little, little over a year after the killing of the DeFeo family. This is the story that eventually became the Amityville Horror as we know it today. It was late in the year of 1975. George and Kathy Lutz were newlyweds in search of a new place to call home. They had recently sold both of their homes and were finding finding it a challenge to locate a home suitable for them and their three children, Daniel, Missy and Christopher the three children were from Kathy's previous marriage and George and Kathy would go on to have two more children Noelle and Gabrielle before they divorced in 1980 but in 1975 they were newlyweds looking for a home for them and their three children their realtor ended up talking George and Kathy into checking out Ocean Avenue and seeing how the upper tax bracket of Amityville lived so off they went they went to check out a listing that they were sure they could not afford. This home was already partially furnished with the DeFeo belongings, and it gave them lots of room. 112 Ocean Avenue is a two-story, five-bedroom, Dutch colonial build. It is situated on 0.24 acres and has access to the Great South Bay waters through a boathouse. At the time, The Lutzes couldn't believe their luck when it was listed at only $80,000. Since it was way below the neighborhood value, they asked, what's up with that? The realtor was transparent with George and Kathy about the DeFeo case. So after talking it over, George and Kathy Lutz decided that murders or not, they wanted to take the home and the belongings that came with it. The Lutz moved into 112 Ocean Avenue on December 18th, 1975. As the story goes a priest came in to bless the home on the possession day when he was up in the sewing room he found it incredibly cold and in the movie he was actually attacked by a swarm of flies in real life, that hasn't been proven <laughs> from there the story focuses on george and how the house was affecting him personally george caught a chill and an obsessive wood chopping habit constantly feeding the fire in the family room he complained about never being able to warm up his sleeping was also disrupted as he woke each morning in around the 3 15 a.m hour not only is this known as kind of like the haunting hour but it is also believed to be the hour in which ronald DeFeo jr killed his family in cold blood more so Kathy was also experiencing her own woes. She noticed rotting smells and dealt with an epic amount of flies. On her worst night, she was found levitating while she slept, waking in the middle of it all. The children also had their fair share of stories, but most famous is the happenings that went on with little Missy. Missy was five at the time and had started spending time with Jody. Jody was Missy's new imaginary friend and was described as a pig with red eyes. Over time, the family worried about Missy's isolation with Jody and her insistence that she was not imaginary. Many believe this pick to be a demon spirit trying to influence Missy into possession herself. As the days went by, George became more and more hostile to his family, bickering and fighting became the normal. And at one point, the family reported seeing mysterious hoof prints in the snow close to their boathouse and that's when things really began to amp up the night that the family left home has never really been talked about by the Lutz but the books speak about bleeding walls disembodied voices asking for slaughter and major poltergeist activity the family fled 28 days after their possession date and have never returned and that part is hundred percent true There actually have been four owners since the Lutz fled the home in early 1976. And the first ones to purchase the home, they claim all the furniture and belongings were indeed still in the house. So when did the Warrens show up? I'm going to get into that a little bit later. Now I'm not going to go into great detail of all things Amityville, as there's so much to find online, in print, and really anywhere you get your content. What I want this episode to be, this part of the episode to be about, is what the last couple of decades have revealed about the DeFeo murders and the Lutz story. I hung on to the original narrative for so long that I assumed I knew all about Amityville. My recent deep dive shows me what no one seems to be talking about in the paranormal circles. I want to start with the Lutzes. Kathy and George never wavered and stuck to their story until they both passed away. George passed away in 2006, and Kathy passed away in 2004. But on June 19th, way back in 1979, a polygraph examination was conducted on both George and Kathy Lutz, and both of them were interviewed by different practitioners. Their results? All critical questions were answered truthfully. They passed. So they are both credited for writing the books, The Amityville Horror, which is definitely one I have read, and Shattered Hopes, The True Story of the Amityville Horror Murders, Part One, From Horror to Homicide. George and Kathy Lutz have been interviewed many times since 1979. You can find them on lots of paranormal TV shows that talk about haunted houses, or even special segments that were dedicated to Amityville. George and Kathy also have always maintained that the haunting they experienced was not like in the movies, although it felt more frightening. I took a peek into what I could find on the children, on Christopher, Missy, and Daniel. There was definitely not much to find on Missy Lutz, but we do know she's in her 50s now. I did find a little more on Daniel and Christopher. The brothers definitely stand by the story that their mother and stepfather told about the house. Both Christopher and Daniel have taken part of their own reveal stories in the 2010s which honestly I haven't dug into yet so if you want to go ahead and search Danielle Lutz you will find links to his TV documentary named my Amityville horror and that came out in 2013 although they were both children at the time Christopher and Daniel maintained that the home was definitely haunted and that their experiences were real but again not like it was portrayed in the books and movies. From the light searching I did complete, the narrative from both brothers, you know what they're pushing now is that George Lutz was the cause of all of these issues, as he himself was deeply involved in the occult, deeper than anybody could have ever known. Kathy's sons claim that George summoned the spirits that wreaked havoc on the family. Now there's little evidence to back up their claims from what I have found, But by this point, you guys, I was overwhelmed with Amityville information already. Amityville is no joke when it comes to the research, I'm telling you. What I did find in multiple sources in regards to the hoax debate of the Amityville horror was actually a public admission from Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s lawyer, Mr. William Weber. He is famously quoted as saying that he met with the Lutz family after they purchased the home. He says that one night after four bottles of wine and a lot of imagining, they were able to cook up how to turn this story of a home victim to a mass murder into a best-selling haunted house book, basically admitting they made up the whole haunted tale and all for the money. Whether the Warrens were in on it or not is yet to be determined. There is suspicion that the Warrens' appearance was planned though, The truth of it all is in this particular case, the Warrens were brought in by Marvin Scott and he was an anchorman at the time for the local Channel 5 News. So not a priest and not by the Lutzes. Marvin and the Warrens had met a year earlier at a haunted church case. Marvin took a shine to how the Warrens conducted themselves during that investigation, so much so that he figured they might be interested in taking a look at 112 Ocean Avenue. Maybe the DeFeo's lawyer knew the anchorman who was connected to the Warrens. I'm not sure. I did look, but I couldn't find any news interviews or connections with Marvin and the Lutz online. Although the Warrens are not part of any of the Amneyville movies. I don't know if you noticed that, but it is very well known that they entered the home. It was a very public investigation. In March of 1976, Ed and Lorraine Warren entered the residence of 112 Ocean Avenue with an investigation team and news crew of seven other people. So there was nine of them in total. The story goes that George was not at the home when they all arrived, that they actually had to get a hold of him by phone. George said that there was no way he would get more than four blocks within that house and that they would have to meet him at a local pizzeria to get the keys. You have to remember it's been less than two full months since his family fled for their lives. Ed said that George was very quiet about his experience and he didn't tell him or Lorraine much about the home before they entered. They kind of figured this was in order to not taint their experience. So off they went with the keys to the house. Ed and Lorraine, as soon as they entered, both expressed how thick and heavy the energy was in the home. Even though Ed claims he's not as sensitive himself, He says he could still feel the weight of the evil right away. Lorraine gives a wonderful explanation of what she picked up with her clairvoyance, including sensing the psychic impressions of the bodies of the DeFeo family members as they were being lined up, covered in white sheets and ready to move on to the morgue. She could feel a deep, deep emotional state of depression and other morbid thoughts. Lorraine also exclaimed how she, could connect to a very evil presence within the walls of the home as well. The news crew set up automatic cameras around the home in order to capture spectral movements. So the only evidence from this investigation is old black and white photos, and they do still exist. One of the photos is actually world famous and is known as the Ghost Boy photo. It, I'm sure you guys have seen it, but I'm going to remind you of what it looks like. Okay? So this photo was taken by on-site investigator Glenn Campbell. And there had been lots of debate over who or what is in this photo the photo shows the upstairs of the home it shows the banisters and doors to some of the bedrooms but you can see what appears to be a small boy peeking out of the door to the left and his eyes are glowing white Ed Warren himself said this photo is totally legitimate as there were absolutely no kids on site that day of the investigation. It was even thought that this photo captured the apparition of one of the DeFeo boys, specifically John. Well, over time there have been claims made that this was actually a photo of a fellow investigator who was crouched down, his name being Paul Bartz. I have also read somewhere online that one of the investigators did in fact bring their 10 year old nephew to the investigation site that day. And that's who we actually see in that infamous photo. When we go back to Ed and Lorraine, Ed was so convinced that the Amityville home was a 12 out of 10 on the scale as haunted as fuck that he actually put $3,000 on the nine line for anyone who could prove the story of the Lutz haunting to be a hoax. His little fun fact, no one ever stepped forward to take on Ed's challenge not while he was alive. Lorraine Warren maintains her story right until death even saying in one of her last interviews that she would never ever enter that home again. One thing Lorraine says often about the Amityville home is that she hopes this is the closest to hell she will ever get. So what do the last four homeowners have to say about the Dutch colonial on 112 Ocean Avenue which is now 108 Ocean Avenue and I'll explain that in a minute. Well, the home was for sale as recent as 2016 listed for $850,000 US but let's go back to the first owners after the Lutz the owners that took over the space right after Kathy and George well they were interviewed at some point and I read that they experienced absolutely no paranormal experiences while at that home and they also mentioned that the Lutz absolutely exaggerated the damage to the interior of the home from the last night they were there the walls and furniture were in great move-in condition the owner said so they couldn't really back up the Lutz's claim of wild poltergeist activity that trashed the place or having any haunted nights of their own each owner seems to have the same story One of the owners actually ended up changing the legal address of the home in an effort to try to stop the looky lures and horror nerds from showing up on their front lawn looking for demons. And this is something that Lorraine has spoken about in the past as well. Lorraine has said that it's a shame that with the current owners of the Amityville and the farmhouse from the Conjuring movies that they have to deal with fans interfering with their lives. She feels bad that the books and movies are causing people to disrupt the current owners peace. It has also been brought up to the Warrens about the fact that no other homeowners after the Lutzes have experienced any supernatural or paranormal events. So what do the Warrens say about that? The Warrens say that everybody is different. The energy that one carries determines what kind of spiritual energy they attract. Along the lines of Law of Attraction. And this is something I can totally agree with. You know, remember when we talked about Auras briefly? The Warren's position on Amityville is that it can have many owners live there and experience nothing, but once the right people with the right energy show up, then this is the cause for the increased paranormal experiences. So now, you know, it's time to circle back and I want to talk about what I learned about Ronald DeFeo Jr. and his tale of demonic influence. Over the last four decades, Ronald has had time to reflect. With a little digging and not much, mind you, I was able to source a bio.com investigative report revisiting the DeFeo murders. It was a very eye-opening 45 minutes, if you ask me. You hear the perspective of what it was like for Ronald in the years and days before the murders. There are also interviews with some of the folks who were directly connected to the DeFeos and to Ronald's case from the beginning to end, including Ronald DeFeo himself a little bit of a spoiler here for you he has changed his story a hundred times and you know what he fully admits it he admits he did this under the advisement of his lawyer and to make his insanity plea work has always admitted he was involved in the murders but he has recently made a public wide confession that his sister Dawn was also involved and that what we want to believe about his story well that's not the truth of it at all Ronald DeFeo Jr. has shared stories of great abuse suffered by his father. The whole family was under the strict and heavy hand of the father and the 10 years that they spent at 112 Ocean Avenue, well, it was just the same as any other home that they lived in. Ronald admits that he was completely lucid the night of the murders and it all started with an attempt to scare his father. Ronald and his eldest sister Dawn were talking and venting that night. Ronald was tired of the abuse and he just knew he would be killed by his father one day. I mean, he had already put an idea into motion about hiring someone to cut his father's brake lines while he was off visiting in Brooklyn and just to be done with it. He loved his siblings and they were very close due to the abuse they all suffered together. Ronald was the, you know, patriarch of the family that they trusted, that they felt safe with. Ronald expressed a lot of love for his mother, but also lost respect for her as she fell down the hole of alcohol and pills just to cover her own pain. The night Ronald murdered his family started as two wound up siblings trying to scare their tormentor and ended in the death of six family members. I put the link to that 45 minute bio.com special in my show notes. If that is the only link that you click, it will be the most important for the Amityville case. Ron Butch DeFeo Jr. says every detective, every federal investigator, and lawyer that he has ever dealt with has been told by Ronald himself that there was more than one shooter in the house that fateful night. He goes on to explain how Don killed the children while he left the house to collect himself after he shot both his parents. DeFeo was in shock, and he had told Don, do nothing. He would be right back. They have to figure things out. But when he did arrive home, he found Don had shot the kids. This was definitely not part of the plan and Ronald snapped as Don tried to turn the gun on him. They wrestled and Ronald got the gun and finished Don. It's all in the open and it has been for years now. That bio.com special, just remember, it's where I found all this information. And if you wanna check it out, that's where Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. tells his truth. So after all that, what do I think? Well, I believe 100% that Lorraine Warren picked up psychic impressions left behind from the DeFeo murders. A thousand percent, actually. But do I believe it's still haunted today? No, not at all. Although I would leap at a chance to do an investigation in a heartbeat. But with all I know about psychic impressions versus real deal hauntings, and everything that I've now consumed in my research for this episode, I truly feel like 112 Ocean Avenue, well, it's had its moment in time. The Lutzes may have had paranormal experiences for sure, but again, not to the degree that Hollywood would have us believe. And I'm kind of a lot suspicious about those book deals and interview tours. I'm just not sure how much, you know, the Letts made from their books and interviews. But I really am stuck on that public quote made by lawyer. You know, maybe they did make it all up. But really, no one will ever truly know except the people involved. There are many other famous cases the Warrens are connected to. And if you liked what you heard today, I want you to know that I do plan to create more podcast episodes on more of my favorites from Ed and Lorraine. Most notably, The Enfield poltergeist, the Snedecker, and Smurl cases, and the Arnie Cheyenne Johnson case. There are some misconceptions of the Warrens' involvement in almost all of their biggest cases. So I really did want to include them all in this episode, but the research alone on Annabelle and Amityville led into a much more content-dense episode than I ever thought. So I will save those for another time where I can give them the intention that they truly deserve. So I'm not going to lie. I was pretty disappointed to find so many articles and videos calling the Warrens out as frauds from everything I've consumed, not only in the last three weeks, but over the last 20 years on the Warrens, I absolutely believe they believed in what they were doing. I also believe that they know the power of a great ghost story. When you take time to watch their videos and listen to their stories, Ed and Lorraine take you on a winding road with vague details of the paranormal and demonic. I'm not sure if Ed Warren was the only non-priest who worked as a demonologist, but who was also backed by the Catholic Church, but I'm pretty sure he is the first of his kind. I hold the utmost respect for the Warrens, fakes or not. It's because of their work that the whole ghost hunting industry is what it is today. Many truth seekers start with the work of the Warrens. I know I did, even though I may not agree with some of their methods or teachings, I have definitely been wide open to understanding why they approach spirit like they did. I've watched many interviews and you know, they have a consistency to their stories like no one else. I'm also grateful for their impact on the world of the supernatural and paranormal. Even though it has come out that Annabelle and Amityville are a touch hoaxy, there are thousands of Warren case files to examine. And there's always skeptics out there who want us to not believe. So this has been a really challenging episode to work through. For me, it was kind of like those situations where you shouldn't meet your heroes but I still believe in the work they did and I still believe that because of them, I do the work that I do today. So I'm undecided about how I feel and what I think about the warrants and how true their case files are in their most extreme cases. So I will research on and when I'm ready to reveal more about the farmhouse and other demonic cases, I will let you know first, but for now, Let me know your thoughts on these two famous cases of haunted and possessed. Hit me up on social media or at my anchor FM page. Do you think the Warrens and these two cases I share today are real deal? Or do you think they're a hoax? Did you learn something new or unexpected from my research? Are you stoked to hear about the farmhouse and demon cases? Leave a comment, post or message, and let's continue the conversation. thank you so much for popping by and spending time with me today. I really appreciate you being here. I'm really excited for the growth and change in store for season two, and I would love to hear your feedback. The Dark Side of light work is where I will be exploring topics of the strange and unusual that I have long researched. My intention is to bring light to the darker subjects others shy away from in spirituality, energy work, and the paranormal. Show topics will include mysterious places, infamous hauntings like Amityville, superstitions and psychics from recent history and antiquity, just like the Warrens. I invite you to leave a message at my Anchor FM page letting me know how you like it. You can also share your personal experience with a show topic or even share a show idea. I listen to each message and may include your idea or recording in a future episode. You can also find me on the interwebs and social media by searching for Wins Soul Remedies. In my next episode, I will talk about the Philip Experiment. This is a real-life tale that began in 1972. I will share what I have learned about a group of Canadian paranormal investigators that may have actually created an entity. Thank you once again for listening until the end. I look forward to dropping the next episode soon, so until then... Take good care.